sure it was a blessing having the word of God presented last week to us and preached from Revelation and uh, just appreciate Brian and his preaching and his preparation and the work that he puts into it and the, the uh, committed uh, life that he has to live for the Lord which is as important as the proper preaching of the word. In fact, you can't have one without the other. So I praise the Lord for what he's doing here. Today we take a look at our series again in Hosea, so I ask you to turn in your Bibles to Hosea 7. Hosea 7. Let's look at all 16 verses of this chapter. Hosea 7. Hosea 7, let's all stand in respect to the reading of God's holy word. When I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed, and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief breaks in, and the bandits raid outside. But they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. By their evil, they make the king glad and the princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. For with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night, their anger smolders. In the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Ephraim mixes himself with the people's. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine they gash themselves. They rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devised evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land 
of Egypt. God give us understanding in his word as we read it this morning, as we preach through, preach through it this morning, as we meditate on it during the week. Let's take a moment now, we bow in a time of prayer, and then our choir will come for a special music, and then the preaching of God's word this morning. Father, we thank you for allowing us to come before you today and even to worship. We thank you, Lord, that there's a sure forgiveness for our sins that you received in the blood of Jesus, and there is no other means of forgiveness other than through his blood. And we stand behind him today. We stand in his blood, washed by it, cleansed by it, forgiven through it, and redeemed because of it, having hope because of his resurrection, looking forward to your return. We marvel, Lord, at, we look at your word, we see your grace, and we see your judgment. We see them both often together, and we are perplexed and amazed, but it's both of them together that helps us understand you and helps us to marvel as you are a God who condemns sin and will judge sin, and yet you are a gracious God to totally forgive sin through the Lord Jesus Christ, your Savior, your Son that you provided. Help those of us who claim Jesus to walk in him humbly and uprightly before you. We pray for strength to do that, Lord. We confess our failures, our weaknesses, our sins, and we claim your power so that we might live a life that's pleasing to you. We pray for each other in that regard. We pray for those who are falling away, who aren't here, aren't regular in their attendance, those who fall away even while here because their hearts aren't given wholly to you. We pray that that not be us. We pray that we will turn from sin. We pray that we will come wholeheartedly to you to love you and to serve you. We thank you for your word through Hosea. We thank you for its clarity. The objects, lessons that you give that are very plain and clear to us pray that we'd abide by them and they would have fruit. Your word would have fruit in our hearts, in our lives. We pray and thank you for your keeping us during the week. We thank you for the strength and the health that you are giving to your people, sustaining us, keeping us through all the challenges that we face day to day. We thank you for that. We thank you for your word going out here through Sunday school and through truth seekers through Wednesday preaching and teaching and praying. We pray, Lord, that we will be on fire for you, that your people would, would praise you and glorify you with all of our strength, with all that we have. And we just thank you for who you are. We praise and we bring glory to you for who you are. 
Teach us through your word now, Lord. Help us to worship and receive your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Eighth message in Hosea. We look at chapter 7 today. Entitled this message, Israel's Sin is Revealed. You may not think that to be good news, to have sin revealed. We often try to hide our sin and our shame and in our guilt. But God brings out sin so that he might deal with it. It's kind of like a doctor, you know. I don't want to go and get that exam. I don't want to go to that test. Not because so much the test hurts. I'd rather just not know. I'd rather go on living the way that I'm living. Assuming that I'm okay. I like that assumption. I can sleep at night with that assumption. I have peace with that assumption. But when you go to the doctor and he gives that test, then you've got to wait for the results. And there's an agony, and there's a worry, and there's a fretting that comes with those results, but it's the results that determine the remedy the healing that needs to take place, what needs to be done so that healing can take place. So when God exposes sin, he, re, he allows sin to be revealed, he does it with his people so that he can heal them. He says that in verse 1, when I would heal Israel. Let's not lose sight of what he's saying there. When I would heal Israel. It's God's desire to heal his people. Not to leave them in sin. Sin devastates, it destroys, it, 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 it plays havoc in our lives. And God doesn't allow that to just sit there. What his desire to do, his desire is to heal us. And he says that I would heal Israel. In verses 1 through 8, let's take a look at God as he shows that he knows about Israel's sin and how he describes their sin. We need to know that God knows so we can stop hiding and we can actually get the healing that we need. We need to look at his description of sin so that we would see it and challenge ourselves to see it the same way. He knows he, he signifies that in verse 2 when he says this. They do not consider that I remember all their evil. In verse 1 he says, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed. 
Now, Ephraim is just another term, part of the tribes of Israel, but it represents the northern kingdom and this Israel that we spoke of. He says, when I would heal them, their sin is revealed. That's a part of the healing process. But he says in verse 2, they don't consider that I remember all their evil. He hasn't forgotten. He hasn't lost sight of it. I remember um, I would get my report card as a kid, and, and I'd come home, and, and uh, uh, you know, I, I'd hope mom and dad didn't see it yet. I knew they saw it. Because sometimes we would get it in the mail, and I see the envelope laying open on their dresser. I know they got it. Now, I didn't have the right to go into that bedroom and, and grab it and look at it. I had to wait till they called me in. I hope by the time dinner came that they had looked at it early in the morning and forgotten about it. But like God, they had good memories. God says in verse 2, I remember all the evil. God don't have Alzheimer's. He don't forget like me. He remembers everything. He says also, their deeds surround them. Another picture of how there's their, their actions, their, their evil, they can't escape from it. God sees it, God knows. You know, we, we do silly things like doing things at night. So God can't see. Making sure there ain't no church people around. So nobody sees. God sees. He remembers. He says their deeds surround them. They are before my face. That's what God says. In other words, I'm very aware of everything that's going on. It's not like in back of me where I can't see. They're before my face. Now, that's a picture. Picturing man as, picturing God as a man, as if he only sees what's in front of him and what's before him. But he said, everything is before my face. I don't have to turn around to see. I see it all. I don't have to put my reading glasses on to get a good view. I don't have to take them off to get a better distant view. I see everything. It's as if it's right in front of me because it is. My presence is everywhere. I see everywhere. That thought should challenge us, but it should encourage us as well. That God sees it all. He's aware of it all. And so there's no need to hide from him. Now, so, so, so that's not for us to say, well, I might as well just be bold with it. No, it's challenging us to repent, to turn from it. Not to be so bold that we don't care who sees, but to turn from it. He says, it's before my face. There are... Um, we talk about God describes their sin. I want to look at this chapter in a couple different ways. He gives us seven terms or seven references that describe their sin. And let's take a look at each one of them. The first one is in verse 1. He says, they deal falsely, but the reference there is to a thief. 
the thief breaks in. He says, my people who sin are like a thief. A thief is one who steals something, and he's trying, he tries to do it on a slide. He tries to get away with it. I watch those commercials that talk about, you know, the new alarm systems and the cameras that we have that right in our doorbells, a couple, couple brands for that. Uh, but but they, they show the burglar who comes, he, he tiptoes, and he thinks he can come to the porch and steal the package on the porch, and then all of a sudden the homeowner makes him know that he sees him. Doesn't know if the homeowner's home or not, or, or maybe somewhere in the Hawaiian, Hawaiian Islands for all he knows, but he answers the door. <laughs> the thief. So they're pictured here as a thief. A thief is one who tries to get away with taking something that's not his. The next phrase or the next reference uh, or, or term is right after that. It says the bandits raid outside. Bandits, they, they, they're a little bit more uh, 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 aggressive than the thief. They're a little violent. They're like our... our, our, our uh, uh, um, uh, what do you call it, carjackers, right? They ain't going to just take your car because you left the keys in the driveway. They will actually come up to you while you're driving a car and command you to get out and take your car. These are the bandits. And so you see the progression of their wickedness. Another term he gives for their sin is in verse 1, I mean verse 4, calls them adulterers. And he includes all of them. So it's not just the women there, it's the men there, because we get a picture through, through Hosea of his wife, Gomer. But God makes it clear it's the whole nation. It's all of them who are acting this way, as, as if they are committed in a relationship to which they are unfaithful. They're, un, they're adulterers. Verse 4. Another phrase or term that describes their sin is in verse 5. And it's not said explicitly, but look what it explains. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. On the day of our king could have been, it's a day of celebration. Maybe it's the king's birthday. Or most likely it was the, the day the king was inaugurated. The day of our king. And so they celebrate this, this, this event. And how do they celebrate? Just like we celebrate today with much drinking of alcohol, and what does that do to them? They become sick with the heat of wine. They're drunk. So the term there is drunkards. That describes their sin. They are drunkards. Now, the Bible doesn't say that you shouldn't drink any wine. It says don't be drunk with wine. So sometimes there is this thin line. But you know when you crossed it. And everybody else knows when you cross it as well. They have been those who seek for joy out of alcohol and are uncontrolled or unrestrained in it. Another picture is even more graphic than that. In verse 7, it says, All of them are as hot as an oven. They devour their rulers. They are murderers. This term of devouring their rulers really goes back to a scene which I'm going to read. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 15. 2 Kings chapter 15. You know, that's why Hosea sometimes is a challenge for us to understand because we need to understand other scriptures with it. And so uh, we don't always know what to read and what goes along. So 
So a study through Hosea will we'll do that. Now, you remember when we started our introduction, we said, in fact, put, let's just do this. Put a finger in 2 Kings 15, and just for a moment, go back to Hosea 1, and recall with me that first verse, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Barry. In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. I believe Uzziah is also referenced. His name is also called Azariah. I think those are the same individuals. In other words, Hosea the prophet spoke in the days of these kings. These kings of Judah and the king of Israel during that time, first of all, was Jeroboam. We call him Jeroboam II because he's a, there's two kings named Jeroboam, the first king of Israel, and then later on, the second Jeroboam. But look at me now, look with me now in 2 Kings 15. Let's read a few verses, quite a few verses, in fact. So you have to follow along with me. I want you to get the gist of what's happening to the northern kingdom, to the kingdom of Israel, to their kings and the secession of kings that happens during this time. 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 8. Are you there with me? All right, so let me just read, read quite a few verses. So I just want you to, to listen. Don't get hung up in the names, you know, even if I don't pronounce them right. Just say to you in your mind, King 1, King 2, King 3, King 4, King 5. And, and look at the kings, look at how long they serve, and look at what happens to them after they serve. Either maybe they, they, they serve because their father was, was a king before them and they served a few years, or they, something happens to them that ends their kingdom abruptly. So take a look at that as we go. In the 38th year of Azariah, now that's, that's actually Uzziah, king of Judah. So it's going to talk about the king of Judah as a reference point to the kings who reigned during his time in Israel. Okay? Got that? In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah... Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel in Samaria six months. So if you notice here, we're going to start with the kings of Israel, and we're going to start with Jeroboam, and then who comes after him is Zechariah. Read verse 8 again, and then I won't interrupt much. In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel in Samaria six months months and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as his fathers had done he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat which he made Israel to sin Shalom the son of Jabesh conspired against him and struck him down at Iblim and put him to death and reigned in his place now the rest of the deeds of Zechariah behold they are written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel this was the promise of the Lord that he gave to Jehu, your son shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And so it came to pass. Shalom, the son of Jabesh, began to reign in the 39th year of Uzziah, king of Judah, and he reigned one month in Samaria. Then Menahem, the son of Gadi, came up from Tizra and came to Samaria, and he struck down Shalom, the son of Jabesh, in Samaria, and put him to death and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the deeds of Shalom and the conspiracy that he made, behold, they are written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. At that time, Menahem sacked Tipsha and all who were in it in its territories uh, from Terza on because they did not open it to him. Therefore, he sacked it. He ripped open all the women in it who were pregnant. 
in the 39th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Manahem, the son of Gedi, began to reign over Israel. And he reigned 10 years in Samaria, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart all his days from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin. Pul, the king of Assyria, came against the land, and Menahem gave Pul a thousand talents of silver that he might help him to confirm his hold on the, power, on the royal power. Menahem exacted the money from Israel, that is, from all the wealthy men, 50 shekels of silver from every man to give to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria turned back and did not stay there in the land. Now the rest of the deeds of Menahem and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Menahem slept with his fathers, and Pekahiah, his son, reigned in his place. In the 50th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekahiah, the son of Menahem, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned two years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, which he made Israel to sin. And Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, his captain, conspired against him with 50 men of the people of Gilead and struck him down in Samaria in the citadel of the king's house with Argob and Aria. He put him to death and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the deeds of Pekahiah and all that he did, before, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. In the 52nd year of Azariah, king of Judah, let me pause here. Notice how many times they mention Azariah, king of Judah, how long he reigned, 52 years, and then all these other kings on Israel's part reigned, not nearly as long as he reigned. So let's go, verse 27. In the 52nd year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 20 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pilser, king of Assyria, came and captured Ejon, Abel-Beth-Meach, however you say that, Genoa, Kadesh, Hazar, Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and he carried the people captive to Assyria. Then Hoshea, the son of Elah, made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, and struck him down and put him to death and reigned in his place in the 20th year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. Now the rest of the acts of Pekah and all that he did, behold, they are written in the books of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Let me just stop there. I read that because that is the history that was going on as Hosea was living and writing this prophecy. We could see one king of Judah reigning 52 years and six kings of Israel reigning during that time span and most of them dying a violent death from the hands of their own people. Go back to Hosea now. Chapter 7. We were looking at pictures or terms that referred, that God uses to refer to the people. And in verse 7, it says, they devoured their rulers. Now we get a sense for what that's like. They devour their rulers. He's calling them murderers. Another term that's used in the very next verse. It's a reference, and from that reference I get a term. Look at verse 8. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. He's using a, 
a, uh, a baker, a food preparer analogy here. But what he's talking about is the fact that they are given to idolatry. So the term there is idolaters. They are idolaters. So we looked at six terms so far. A thief, a bandit, an adulterer, a drunkard, a murderer, idolater. And then the last one in verse 13 is blasphemer. Verse 13, woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. Not only do they speak lies, but they speak lies against the Lord God. It's called blasphemy. So we see seven terms that I've, 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 I've used here or references to the actions of the people of God and they are negative terms that describe their sin. They are thieves, bandits, adulterers, drunkards, murderers, idolaters, and blasphemers. He pretty much covers it all, doesn't he? He covers their outward view of what they do and what they do in their innermost bedrooms. They are sinners. He doesn't stop there, though. In this chapter, he also gives four pictures. Four pictures of their sin. Four pictures. Here are the four. First picture is of an oven, something you bake in, an oven. The second one is a cake, like a pancake. Or like cornbread, if you make it the old-fashioned way. Right? <laughs> Making me hungry now. Now you see why I use so many food references, because the Bible does. The third picture is of a dove, and the fourth picture is of a bowl. The first picture of an oven is in verse 4, verse 6, and verse 7. So let's take a look at that first. It, this, this describes, um, in fact, all four of these pictures describe their passion for evil, their foolishness, and their uselessness. All four of these pictures describe their passion for evil, their foolishness, and their uselessness. We're going to talk about how each one of those pictures are used in that way. First of all is the oven. It talks about their passion for, for, for evil. Oven speaks of heat, right? You know, in, in, in the warm summer days, we try not to cook so much indoor and use the oven because it's going to heat the house up. In the cold, in the, in, in the winter, I don't mind. Put the oven on. You know, heat it for two hours before you put the pizza in so that the kitchen can warm up. We got that saying, if you can't stand the heat, get out the kitchen. Well, in the, in the winter, it just don't apply. Everybody's in the kitchen then. You love the heat. But the oven speaks of its heat. And there's, there's three aspects to that. When he says in verse 4, they are adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire when the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. He said it's a heated oven that even after the baker stops mixing the fire, it still heats up. Now we, those of us, I should say those of you, who barbecue, because I'm, I'm not a cook at all, but those of us who, who, those of you who barbecue, who heat the coals, right, who heat the charcoal, you, you pour the charcoal fluid on it, and, and, and first of all, you, I know this because I watch people, not because I do it myself, but they, 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 they bunch the, the charcoal together and they soak it with the charcoal fluid so that each charcoal brisket 
would be drained or soaked with the fluid, right? And then they light it, and they, 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 they let it catch fire, right? And then what do you do? After it has caught on, you spread it out. So you can have equal flame or heat distributed equally on your grill. Now, I sound like I know what I'm doing, but I, like I said, I've been watching my father-in-law for a long time. <laughs> he know how to do it. So he's saying is you want that flame spread out equally. And he's saying these folks keep their flame even after they spread out. I mean, even before they spread out, before they stirred and spread out, they still got their flame. He's speaking of a passion for sin that doesn't cease. Even after it's stirred, it keeps on going. The second picture of the oven is in verse 6 when he says this, For with hearts like an oven... They approach their intrigue. All night, their anger smolders. In the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. Here we have a picture of suppressed passion. It's passion that seems to be bottled up, and then after smoldering for a while, poof, it erupts. Picturing them in the heat of their passion their passion for wrong, their passion for sin. In the third picture in the next verse, it says, After all of them are hot as an oven and they devour the rulers. Here's a picture of an oven that's so hot. It has extreme heat that it just destroys, it devours, it licks up everything in its path. Here you kind of get a picture of um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember when, when the, uh, uh, the king wanted to throw them into the fiery furnace? The furnace was so hot, the men standing by were in jeopardy. They died from the heat. It, this is such a blame, uh, flaming heat. And so he's talking about their passion for wickedness, their passion for evil was described that way. Let's look at the second picture, picture of a cake. Verse 8, Ephraim mixes himself with the people. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Used to get up in the morning and want to eat some, so I would fix pancakes. And we didn't have microwaves, so we didn't have the pancakes you take out of the freezer and just pop them in the microwave and, 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 and turn it on for two minutes and they're done. You know, I call them fake pancakes. My wife don't quite get it. But true connoisseurs of pancakes, like, like, they like them the old-fashioned way. We used to make the, fix up the batter, and this is the days when you, you put the eggs and, and the milk and everything in there, and now you got the Auntie Mama already made, just have water. Whichever way you want to do it, you stir it up, and what do you do? You, you heat the pan. Not too hot, but you heat it. Because what happens is, you know, I'll, I'll be hungry. I heat it. Let's do this quick, right? Let's get these pancakes done. Turn up the heat a little bit, and they get hot, and you pour the batter in, and guess what happens? The bottom gets hot real fast, and so it's time to flip it so it won't burn. And you flip it, right? And if you're not doing it right, the, the, the next side gets done too fast, but the middle isn't done. He said, these are like cakes that aren't even turned. 
pour it out, they're on the grill, and you don't even flip them. Now, the picture is that nobody wants to eat that. We like the pancakes done. We don't like custard-filled pancakes. We don't like to bite into them and there's something gushy on the inside. It's not supposed to be like that. And the picture there is, if it's like that, what do you do? You flip them jokers into the garbage. You don't eat those. You might feed them to the dog. I don't know what you do, but you don't eat them. They are what? Useless. Something, here's a picture that, that's, that's given here. Of all of these pictures, what we see is something that should be good, useful, or adequate, or pleasant. Because it's done wrong, because of sin, it no longer is. We know heat in an oven is useful. It prepares our food. It takes food from being raw to food that's deliciously prepared. But if it's done wrong, it takes good food and burns it. And so you can have steak, you can have lobster, you can have the greatest food, but if it ain't prepared right, it's useless. You throw it out. In a, so that's the oven. The oven is a good tool. But if it's not right, it doesn't serve well as a tool. A cake that's not turned is a cake that nobody wants to eat. The third one is a dove. He is a picture of a dove. Verse 11. Ephraim is like a dove. When I first see that, I said, now wait a minute. You see, our picture of a dove is what? It's a symbol of peace. It's a symbol of unity. It's a symbol of love. And even in, in Scripture, it gives us a symbol. It's a symbol of love. It's a symbol of comfort. Uh, the dove is, is, is a symbol and a picture of the Holy Spirit and the, the, the Spirit who comforts us. And so there are things that are good about a dove, but he's not bringing that out here. These are things that should be good. In fact, you'll see in Matthew, in, in, the, the dove was a, an animal that was adequate and proper for sacrifice. God allowed Israelites to, to bring a dove. Now, it's, it's, it's interesting that Jesus or Jesus' parents, when he was young, brought a dove as a sacrifice for him. And they did that because, first of all, it was acceptable. The Old Testament made it clear that was an acceptable sacrifice. Why a dove and not a lamb? Because they didn't have enough money for a lamb. That's what it was. The dove was acceptable, and it was a common sacrifice for poor folk who didn't have enough to get the whole lamb. They could sacrifice a dove. So a dove was associated in some very positive ways in Scripture, but something wrong with this dove. Or there's some aspect of a dove that describes some things that are negative, and talk to a sin, and he brings them out. He says in verse 8, excuse me, in verse 11, Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense. The dove is something that should be associated with good things, and often is associated with good things, but in the wrong place, it's also associated with something that's not so good. I don't know if you know it, but if you study birds, you know that doves and pigeons which we think totally different about, are much the same animal. They're, they're part of the same class of bird. They are part of the same class. We like doves. We don't too much like pigeons. 
It's not a good association that we have with pigeons. When I think about pigeons, I think about the birds that, that just are a nuisance everywhere they go. They crowd around and they make a big mess and nobody wants them around. So a dove and, and a pigeon is not much distinction between the two in terms of their class. And he says this, that the negative aspect of a dove that describes them is they, they are silly and without sense. It's as if he's saying, look, you should be used for good, but you are being, you're allowing yourself to be used in a negative way. The, the dove was described as silly because it was lacking in understanding. A, a dove was easily trapped. And it was often careless about the care of its own young. They even said about a, young, about a dove that, you know, the, the picture of them is as a love-type bird, but the truth is that they were often found are just uh, 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 quarreling with their mates. <laughs> That's the picture of a dove. Here is a people who should be accepted by God as a dove was acceptable for sacrifice, but they were rejected now because of their action as a nuisance. Silly as a dove. Then the fourth, pic, fourth picture given near the end of this chapter in verse 16. <clears throat> they return but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. What he's talking about is a bow and arrow. What we call a bow and arrow. You would take the bow. It would have some kind of a material that was strong but yet flexible and some type of a string that was put on there when the string was pulled back it would be have so much force that when let go it could propel the arrow to a to make it a mighty weapon now what scares us about a weapon any kind of weapon we know is powerful right we know its potential that it can bring great harm they use the bow to hunt you can imagine if you're not pulling it right and holding it right you could bring harm to yourself. It's kind of like for a person who's not skilled in handling uh, a firearm or a gun, you, you hold that gun in your hand, and, and you would imagine if it's not well made and you pull the trigger and it backfires or some mishap happens, that thing could explode in your face. And that, that's kind of the picture of a treacherous bow, one that should aid the person as a tool to, 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 to either in the battle or in hunting to allow them to accomplish what they need to accomplish, but instead it's a treacherous bow. It can't be trusted. It's going to cause a backfire and harm the very person that uses it. Israel was like that. So he uses this thing to describe their sin, and he's saying, I know your sin. And he's also saying that your sin is something that makes you useless. It is something that shows your passion for evil and your foolishness. Part of their foolishness is explained in verses 9 
through 11. So Hosea 7, verse 9 through 11. Let's take a look at that. Israel is blind and fails to repent from their sin. We, all, we already said that God knows their sin. He describes their sin. And now we see they're blind to their own sin. And they fail to repent from their sin. Look at verse 9. It says, Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. That term, that phrase is repeated again. He knows it not. He knows it not. These things are happening to him, and he's not aware. Strangers devour his strength, and he doesn't know it. That reminds me of the, of the story of Samson, doesn't it? Where Samson was, he was bold. He was bragging about his strength, and he would tell Delilah, she would toy with him, tell me where your strength lies. And, and, and did he not know that she was trying to destroy him? And he finally, in spite of that, told her the truth. He's saying, strangers devour your strength, and you, you're not even aware of it. In other words, it sounds like Samson waking up from that sleep, and Delilah has now cut his hair, and he goes out like he's got all his strength. He doesn't realize it ain't there. That's a scary thing. It ain't there. Then he uses something I'm very familiar with. He talks about gray hairs. He's saying you're getting old and you're losing your strength, but what's worse is you don't even realize it. You don't even know. You're acting like this doesn't happen, and you're unaware of it. Isn't that, isn't that scary? For a person to think that they look in the mirror and they think one thing, but the mirror is telling them something else, and they don't realize it, they do not understand it. He's saying that's what Israel is. We are fooled by our sin. I can say it another way. We are made fools by sin. Sin will make us think us to be something that we are not. Perhaps something we should be, but because of sin, we are not. They should be strong, but because of sin, they are not. They should be strong, they should be wise, but because of sin, they are not. In verse 10, he says, The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Israel is blind. They fail to repent, even though the God has given them several signals that they should turn to him. Several warnings that they should turn to him. Several indications that their steps, if they keep going that way, are going to bring them harm, but they still do not stop. You've ever been in a position where you want to warn somebody and you know you need to warn them and, and you warn them, but you, you feel like you need to do more than just warn them. You actually want to restrain them from doing the thing that they're trying to do, but you realize, hey, let them go. Because you might restrain them now, but as soon as they are on their own, they're going to do the thing that they're determined to do. Remember the oven and the heat, the heat of their passion to do and to make themselves where they are totally now useless. It says, in spite of all these things, they have not and they will not turn to the Lord. 
he brings that out in several ways. Verse 7, at the end of verse 7, he says, Their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. In spite of what's going on, they still don't get the message. They still don't turn to the Lord. In verse 10, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Then the last couple of verses, we see that God will judge their sin. Now that's easy to see. Yes, God will judge their sin, but there's something else that he gives us here that he wants us to take note of. And I get that in a statement in verse 1. And then there's another statement in verse 13 that just kind of jump out to me. That's a message of Hosea. Verse 1, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed. When I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed. In verse 13, he says this, Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I kind of wonder there, is, is that a judgment or is that a warning? It seems to me both. He's saying, I warned them not to do this. But their doing this shows that they are saving themselves for judgment. Then he says at the end of verse 13, it ties into verse 1, I would redeem them. In verse 1 he says, when I would heal Israel. In verse 13 he says, I would redeem them. God is showing the heart of his, his own heart to his people saying, my desire, my heart is to redeem them. But they won't have it. They want nothing to do with it. God says, I would plead with them. This is something I desire to do. I want desperately to do this. But, so he says, I would but yet, I would, but. And the but is because of their action and what they do. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. So, he says, this is what I would do. Since I would do this, but yet they do this. I will do this. Verse 12, as they go, I will. Notice the I will. I will spread over them my net. He describes them as a silly bird, a dove, and then he says, I'm going to treat them like that. See, because they are silly and they, they're not watchful, they don't take the warning, they don't see the trap is set, they ignore that, I'm going to spread my net over them. I'm going to bring judgment over them. The second I will, says in verse 12, I will bring them down like birds of the heaven. Since you act like a silly dove, I'm going to bring you down like birds. And then the third I will, I will discipline them. I will 
I will, I will. God says, I would, but since I will. I would, but since you won't turn, I will. The picture in Hosea, the loving, gracious, patient God who longs for his people to return to him. But he says because of their obstinate hearts, the heat of their passion to stay in their sin, they rebel, they run from God, and they bring about his judgment and his discipline. I would, I would, but I will. I will. I will. The warning is clear. It's to Israel who are listed as the people of God. God is speaking to us today. You can make that application. And he's saying, I want you to know my heart. I would. That's my desire. Turn to me. Turn from sin. Turn from anything that makes a false God before me. Turn from looking to other things to redeem and to save you. Turn from your actions and your thoughts and turn to me. This is what I desire. You have to ask yourself, in what ways must I turn? In what ways is God challenging me? God says, I know your sin. I know you. And I'm speaking lovingly to you today. Would you recognize my warning? God said that his people were idolaters. In other words, they were looking for a God outside of Jehovah Lord God. We can look for saviors outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can look for pleasure in our life. We can look for things because, I don't know, we're bored or things because we um, are attracted to the things in the world outside of Christ and who he is. He is our savior. He is our adequate savior. He is our only adequate savior. And God wants us to embrace him. So our call, our call today as believers, for those who are believers today, is to turn to Christ and embrace him and repent of any other things that compete with him in your life. Anything that distracts you, they can be good things or okay things. They can be children. They can be jobs. They can be status. They can be our sense of importance, our desire to feel good about ourselves, that we pursue those things instead of pursuing God himself. And God says, that's a, that's a God that doesn't satisfy. Come and turn to me. 
He says those kind of gods and those kind of sins will make you useless. You who should be my people and serving me and suited for service to me, sin will destroy that and make you useless. So it will actually destroy you. Return to God. Father, we thank you for your word today. Your warning and your encouragement to us. So easily, Lord, we can stray from you. And our passions go in another direction. So we thank you for your warning, Lord. We pray now that you'd help us to refocus on you and who you are and a pattern our lives in, the, in, in a way that brings you glory, in a way that shows dependency on you, trust in you and trust in you alone. Any other saviors that we've picked up along the way, Lord, we want to drop them right now. We want to turn away from them and turn to you. We pray this now in Jesus' name.